0: What's going on, everyone? My name's Adam, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. Our vision here at Sanctus is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Come on, let's get ready for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome to week two in our story out of Ezra. I was driving along the 401 for you who are Watching in another part of Canada, maybe the States, the UK, Australia, somewhere else in the world. I don't know where. You might not know what that is. It's our major highway that cuts right through uh, the city of Toronto. Um, So I was driving. It was a normal day. And traffic was great. There wasn't very little of it. And I'm sort of booting along. And on the other side of the highway, things began to slow down. And so we're driving fast, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're driving and you're just so glad you're not on the other side where things are slowing, slowing, slowing down. Anyway, I'm driving by, and I'm trying to see what's causing this delay. The delay wasn't massive yet, but I could tell there was a bunch of cars sort of jammed up and then slowly getting out of that sort of that jammed situation. Well, as I drove by, I suddenly realized what it was. There was a cop car on the side of the road with a construction vehicle. I don't believe the cop car's uh, lights were on. I don't even believe that the construction vehicle had any lights on either. They were just sitting there. So this wasn't an accident. There wasn't construction. They were just there. And I couldn't believe the blockage this caused. It just caused everyone almost to stop. I don't know if they were looking at it or they were concerned something was going on. Uh, Now, I intentionally sort of calculated it. It was like, 10 miles, like 12, 14 kilometers worth of dead traffic because of just these two vehicles on the side of the road. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, isn't it amazing that something so small, insignificant, there is no emergency, there is no issue, could cause such delay, such such backup. And I was like, wow, if a small thing like that can cause such delay, the major things of life or in spirituality or church, they can cause even greater moments of delay, even if they're not needed. And I want that image burned in your mind uh, this morning as we keep journeying together through this story of rebuilding. Now, Pastor Joel preached last week, and let me just do a mini summary for you who maybe weren't with us. The story of Ezra started long before Ezra was on the scene. It starts all the way back in 586 B.C. Judah rebels against Babylon. Babylon re- re- invades. They burn the temple. The people of God are taken into captivity. Now, if you read the whole story, you'll know that the people of God actually rebelled against God. And God said, if you continue to sin, I'm going to give you over to judgment. So the rebellion wasn't just against Babylon. It was against God himself. And in that horrific moment, that literal undoing moment of the people of God, God sent this prophet Jeremiah and in the middle of the weeping and the burning and the exile, Jeremiah was told to say that God in 70 years would bring back the people of God to this very spot and he did. This was the promise, 70 years, return and restoration and it was happening. 70 years later in multiple waves, Jewish people began to come back and began to rebuild Jerusalem, the altar, the temple. It was amazing. This is what we call the second exodus, and it's begun. And we saw this in part last week in Ezra 1-5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So you've got joy and new beginnings and resurrection and new hope and new worship. A literal new house is being built. And I just want to pause as we get going here. And this is critical for this whole series. It took God. Did you notice it? The Lord had to move the hearts of the people to leave now what they were used to, to go to an old place, which would be a new place, to rebuild. And it took God's spirit to do it. So I'm just going to stop and say, oh God, hear our prayer at this moment as we keep rebuilding ourselves. Move your people. Can anyone say amen? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then uh, chapter 1, chapter 2 happens, and we get to chapter 3. reads like this in Ezra 3, 1. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shetal, and his associates began to rebuild the altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, Key key verse, verse three. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. So number one, let's just sit in this for a moment. Can you imagine the pain if you're a Jewish person? You're standing in the middle of a massive rubble pile where God's temple used to be where God's presence used to be. And the whole city that was the center of your culture and your faith and your very identity is, it's lost, it's broken, it's been looted, it's been burned, it's destroyed. No more Ark of the Covenant anymore, no more Holy of Holies anymore, nothing. This was the most guaranteed place of encounter between God and human beings, and it's gone. And yet despite all of that, because God's Spirit moved, they begin to rebuild. Now, it says there's serious opposition. And take this personally. This is like serious opposition to you even being back in this spot again. Serious opposition to you actually being in this city again. Serious opposition to you rebuilding your house again, your temple again, all of it. And the opposition, as we'll find out, uh, I believe next week, was political, spiritual, governmental. It was life-threatening. And yet, this group decides to obey God. So in the face of fear in the face of actual death, in the face of injustice, in the face of spiritual opposition, they obey God anyway. So they gather as one people and they stand where the great altar used to stand in Solomon's day. And they begin, notice, to rebuild the altar. They begin to rebuild Worship. And for the first time in 70 plus years, worship of the true living God in a formal way begins to take place. But there's more. Not only do they begin to rebuild worship, the, the altar, then they begin to actually start rebuilding the actual temple itself. It says in verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests, in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, sons of Aswa, with symbol, took their places to praise God as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and with thanksgiving, they sang to God, saying to the Lord, He is good, His love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to God because the foundation of the house of the Lord was now laid. So that phrase, He is good, and His love endures towards Israel forever, that's right out of the Psalms. We've talked about this time and time again in this year of rebuilding. One of the most important ways to overcome fear hey, listen, can I have your attention? This really matters. One of the most important ways to overcome fear, one of the most important ways to rebuild a local church community is an intentional God-centered culture that's connected to thanksgiving. We see this, and we've seen it this year in the story of Joshua. We've seen this in the Psalms. We see it here in Ezra. All of these great leaders root the call for people's thankfulness, not just in grand theological ideas, but actual, historical, experienced events. But let me just say this real clear. If there's no thanksgiving in the house, there's no rebuilding. If you're bitter, you can't rebuild. If you're unforgiving, you cannot rebuild. See, thanksgiving is the thing that allows the Spirit to move the people to actually do the thing. Now we still need to be incredibly honest. In the middle of real excitement and real thanksgiving and and pain, there still can be real disappointment. See, two things can be true at once. You see, one part of this new community actually was part of the old community. They had been there 70 years earlier when everything was amazing and beautiful. They had seen, they had even worshipped in the last temple Solomon's Solomon's Temple 70 years before, they saw Israel at its height when God moved so powerfully, when Israel had its greatest God-given influence, but now it's all broken down and nothing is left. Now the other group has never seen this temple before, never saw Israel in its past glory, and so this day is nothing but amazing and exciting because God is doing a new thing and they get to be part of it. That's why it says in Ezra 3, and by the way, I don't know if you remember, I referenced this verse all the way back in September. Verse 12. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Well, many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made such a noise and the sound was heard far away. So in, this, in the middle of this God-given moment, you've got joy and sorrow. You've got pain, disappointment, and thanksgiving, and yet together they keep rebuilding. Now, the story continues. A few years later, Nehemiah comes. There's a second huge wave of Jewish people, and they start rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And the promise is being seen again, right in front of the very eyes. It reads like this in, uh, in Nehemiah 12:27 at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. The Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with music of cymbal, harp, and lyre. So the temple is being worked on, and the altars being rebuilt, and the walls are being rebuilt, and the land is being re-inhabited. Jerusalem is literally rising from the ashes. It's literal resurrection. The promise was given through Jeremiah 70 years before. Then the promise is experienced in part. And then something happens. All the joy and all the celebration and all the hard work and all the faith and all the overcoming obstacles by faith and all the facing down real enemies and all the God-given focus begins to dissipate. There is massive opposition, which all of next week's sermon is going to be about. But here's what begins to happen. They begin to slow down. A traffic jam begins to take place. They begin looking sideways at the police car, and they start looking at the other thing, the construction vehicle, and not looking forward, and suddenly there's this huge moment of stopping. Faith dissolves. Life scatters focus. Focus. Time dispels vision. And then we arrive years later. Now, I'm just going to pause and say what I'm about to preach is the very thing I preached last September as we started rebuilding our church post COVID. 18 years has passed from this amazing Ezra moment. A new character comes on the scene, and his name is Haggai. Now, he's a prophet. And he's about to speak to God's people in this very environment. Now, the question is, what happened? Reality had set in. And actually, we're going to talk about that reality for the next few weeks. The hard reality of rebuilding rebuilding, took its toll. The leaders stopped leading. The people stopped believing. The work froze. The traffic jam grew and grew to the point where people just got off the highway. So God, who, by the way, is always faithful, who always acts on his promises, who cannot lie, he chooses to step into the middle, he comes to his people, and he wants them to receive the full promise he had given them. So where does God start? Well, he begins to speak to them and talk about history. So here's how Haggai begins speaking for God in Haggai 1.1. In the second year of King Darius... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Oh, it's the same two leaders. And notice, I don't know if you caught it, one's political and one's spiritual, making up the whole of God's people. Now, this moment where God speaks again to Haggai happens during a religious gathering taking place somewhere between August and September. This is the time of year when grapes and figs and pomegranates are harvested. Now, that's going to be a key thing as we keep going. And then God says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be, uh, be built. And you're like, hold on, John, hold on. I thought the temple was being built, and I thought the walls were being built. Well, yeah, it was started. The walls probably at this point are done, but the temple isn't. So God now decides in sovereignty to speak to his people. It's a word that's loving, like a father correcting his children, and it's discipline, but his goal is blessing. He wants them to touch, to celebrate, and realize the full promise. Now notice, in that verse there, you might want to put it back up, it says, his name is the Lord Almighty, uh, the Lord of hosts, the one in whose name the prophet spoke, the Lord of all power, seen and unseen, the Lord of angel armies, or the armies of heaven. God as king and God as warrior shows up on the scene, and and he begins to speak to his people, and his words are a little striking, because notice what he starts saying. These people say, That language in itself is sort of like a loving rebuke. I mean, these are his people. But the language begins to reflect a barrier, an attitude that exists between them. They're not committed. There's a non-relational aspect to this. It even feels a little sarcastic. I mean, God is God, and they decide what needs to be done in God's timing. So these people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be uh, built. So, God's temple is unfinished, but the community, by life and action, by the use of their time and talent and wallet, declared what they thought in their hearts. God's temple was secondary, not primary at this point in time. Yet the temple is the heart of the promise. God's worship, their relationship, the restoration of temple worship after 70 years, his presence, their unique identity, it's all connected. So why in the world would God's people, who by the way, actually got up from another land, moved all the way back, began working so hard, why would they stop rebuilding? Well, there are lots of good reasons, and by the way, if you read scholars, there's six reasons why they said we need to stop. Number one, the people needed to rebuild the temple have to make a living. Most of them are farmers, and they had to work on the farms. And at this time, because when this takes place, it's actually harvest time. So they're basically saying to God, hold on, you want me to rebuild the temple, but it's harvest time, so how do you expect me to rebuild your temple while I'm supposed to be on my farm harvesting pomegranates, etc.? I can't do two things at once. That's number one. Number two, real questions started forming. It sort of moved from doubt to something more insidious. Did God really want us to do this, They begin asking? I mean, it was a non-Jewish king, Cyrus, who told people to show up and do this, and he's not even a Jew, and he doesn't even truly know the true living God. Maybe maybe Ezra didn't hear God, and maybe, maybe Nehemiah didn't really hear from God either. Maybe our leaders didn't hear the promises of God, and maybe the promise wasn't from heaven at all. Maybe they had a political agenda or an ethnic agenda. Just, you know, maybe we shouldn't trust our leaders anymore. Uh, The third thing, many, many exiles came with Ezra and Nehemiah, but many, many more Jews chose not to come back. They chose to think of uh, Babylon, Persia as their home. They were doing okay financially there. They had set up life there. It had been 70 years. Why in the world would you give up everything you've got to face new projects and face all this danger and... And give up everything. I mean, that's not an inspiration. I'm comfortable with my new normal. I don't want to go back to this thing and begin to rebuild. We also know, as we're going to find out more next week, from Ezra and Nehemiah, the political situation of the time was dangerous. The local population was against them rebuilding walls in the temple. And there was a lot of political intrigue. So I'm sure some well-meaning, pragmatic leaders would say, well, let's just wait for a less hostile, more peaceful time when things are safer. And then there was the funds themselves. As we're going to find out later in this passage, drought was being experienced at this moment, which is ebbing away at the ability to actually give money or do the time to do the thing. And then lastly, people just were dealing with their own stuff, building their own stuff. I mean, okay, let's just stop. Doesn't this literally sound like today? I cannot do my job and I cannot rebuild. I'm not sure if God even really wants to rebuild Sanctus or any other church, and I like my new post-COVID life without the pressure of church and serving, and you know it's really dangerous right now, John. I mean culture is really against the church, and the church has a bad reputation. Some deserve, some not, but it's really hard. It's actually getting much harder to be a Christian, and and so, you know, maybe we should be a little bit quieter, and the world is getting pretty crazy. Have you been on TikTok and Twitter lately? It's pretty bad, so maybe we should just wait, and other people are like, well, I don't even have as much as I used to. I lost a lot in the last little while. So how in the world do I give and serve when I'm just trying to survive over here? And other people like, actually, I have more than I've ever had in my life. And I sort of am comfortable with that. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains in a ruin? So God's speaking about priorities here. So you're looked after. But my house, my glory, my ways aren't central. You've lost vision for life. You've lost vision for why the second second exodus happened. Your every day has actually taught you that unfulfilled kingdom, unfulfilled promise is okay. So in other words, life has become your God, or comfort has become your God, or fear has become your God, or sadness has become your God, and I, who am the Lord of hosts, have been replaced just by your every day. Now, the example God brings up here is their homes. The phrase is paneled houses. Now, a lot of people preach this, and they don't do very well. Uh, People disagree about the meaning of what this could have meant. Many think that, and most people preach, that the Jewish people at this time are living in houses full of wealth and luxury. The paneled houses are like expensive wood paneling. In other words, in our terms, they were in House and Home magazine, they were featured on HGTV, they're all you know, going down to Home Depot and designer shops, and they're doing all this incredible stuff for their own home. That's one view. Others actually just say, no, no, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means they have a roof on their house. They had finished their home, or maybe we could put it like this. They had done basic renovations, and they were mortgage-free, and they were just working. Others say, actually, this is a rebuke against leaders who are commanding the team, the community, to actually build their homes. Now, I'm not sure which one it is, but no matter which one it is, the temple, the place of worship, was not finished, but everyone else was finishing whatever they were doing because that was the priority. So God says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of angel army says, the God of the universe says, give careful thought to your ways. Stop your work. Stop and listen. You, you, You can't just keep running and do it. You need to stop and evaluate. The normal rhythm of your life shows your heart, shows your spiritual priorities, and I'm just telling you as God, they're not correct. You've planted much, you harvest little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have you fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So for all your hard work and all you do, day in and day out, you're not finding satisfaction. All this stuff does not help, does not bring what your soul longs for. You eat, you work your clothe yourself, and, and, and. And the scary thing is it would seem that the people of God did not even see this trending non-satisfaction as bad. It's just normal. So then again, this is what the Lord Almighty says, verse 7. He says it again. Give careful thought to your ways. He stops them. It's like, hold on, breathe. Just look. Look for the pattern. It doesn't need to be this way. Here's what you need to do. You need to start doing what you did 18 years ago. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber, build the house, so I may take pleasure in it and be honored," says the Lord. This is the call to action. As you started with Ezra, as you did with Nehemiah, now again, I'm just—you need to get out of the traffic jam and act. You need to move forward. As one author said, by obeying, they'll be turning their back on apathy and indifference and demonstrating repentance in their actions. Give your time, give your money, give give your gifts, give, give your work, rebuild. I love how the Amplified Version of the Bible says this. Go up to the hill country, bring lumber and rebuild my house, and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, says the Lord, by accepting it as done for my glory and by displaying my glory in it. See, This is critical. Not only will God accept the rebuilding as an act of worship, this is the important thing, He will bring His holy presence back among them. Yes, God is everywhere. We talk about this at Sanctus all the time. But at key times, God in His power, in His love, in His presence, makes Himself known palpably. This is when He draws near. This is when God breaks in. I mean, this is what they had cried over and longed for. They had waited for this for 70 years. They thought 70 years earlier, all was lost and it would never come back. And now it literally, he can literally come back and they're like, I'm not sure if I really want to do this. It's a mix of unbelief and idolatry and busyness and distraction and bitterness and sadness and life stuff all creeping in at once. Oh, he says, listen, you expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. And what you brought home, I... I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains in a ruin. Well, each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, the earth its crops. I call for a drought. Oh, there it is. I call for a drought. On the fields, in the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, on the oil, whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, on the labor of your hands. There is a direct connection between God, His temple, and their historic lived reality. And God allows all of this to happen. Why? Because he actually wants to spare his people from the root of all things evil. Human pride which leads to self-sufficiency. The idea that we can be just okay with life without God. Now here's this amazing thing that happens. It's like a mini revival takes place again. Then Zerubbabel, remember same leader from the time of Ezra, son of Shetel and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. Did you notice it? They heard, they obeyed, they feared. They heard, they obeyed, they feared. By the way, startled by the move of God and the voice of God, they refocused. But fear, fearing God is not dread in this case. It's not terror. It's not crouching in some corner and God is like beating you up as an angry thug. Fear is awe and love and respect. It's actually a phrase of worship. But the amazing thing is they obeyed. I mean, this is what Jesus' half-brother would say later in James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word of God and deceive yourself. Do what it says. (laughs) So, it says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to Of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So, does God leave his people alone to do the task? No. He always knows we need his presence and his power, and he declares he'll be with them. This promise, I am with you, is so important. Just, again, can I have your attention? What overcomes guilt and shame? For real. God's presence. What overcomes fright and fear? I am with you. God's presence. What overcomes all the good reasons and excuses not to obey? God's presence. What overcomes uh, genuine doubt and puts it in its right category? God's presence. What overcomes all of our reasons not to act? God's presence. God's real presence always is the game changer. His His presence leads to eagerness, dedication, fresh work. But you can't host his presence unless you're worshiping. I love when one person said, I am with you, was connected to the wanderings of nomads. And the promise actually means this. God will protect, accompany, combat, and guide. In other words, when God says, I'm with you, especially to a Jewish person hearing this, they go back to that time in the wilderness wanderings. And basically what we would say is God's got our back. And then it happens. Here's this mini revival. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So to accomplish this task, God not only calls them and promises his presence, he actually gives them his spirit. He actually uniquely enlivens, empowers the two leaders, but also all the people. God sovereignly rebukes, calls, acts, and then stirs up the core of each person. And by the way, some of you might know this, some of you might not. There's another prophet who God sends at the same time, the time of Haggai, and his name is Zechariah. And Zechariah is given this word, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. People put it on bumper stickers. They sing it. They always put it on Instagram. And and listen to it. It's Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, same leader. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord Almighty. So God moves and all the people are involved in God's work and his task, from praying to planning to building to supporting. Everyone's obeying, supporting, they're involved. And God has said, we're going to do this together. The planners, the priests, the people, the promise, it's all finally being accomplished. So I know I skipped to the end. And then in the next few weeks, we're going to go back in the middle and walk through all these key points. But let me just say this to you. Hey, Sanctus Church, family, as we have said, and God was very clear, that this year would be a year of rebuilding for this church. What is the living God saying to us uniquely? Not just said, well, that's a good thought, John, or that's an interesting leadership principle. What is God saying to Sanctus in this moment? As we are, this is important, moving from a year of rebuilding now to a coming year of momentum, what is God saying? And let me just use the image. Well, it's critically important we understand we cannot get stuck on the 401. I, when I'm preaching this, we have just finished having an incredible uh, few weeks. We had Palm Saturday and, and Palm Sunday, and there was like, Thousands of people physically and virtually that joined us. And then the week of fasting, praying and the Good Friday and the Easter, like just thousands and thousands and thousands of us gathered, regathered in this church. And there was celebration and, and there was joy. And by the way, since September, giving, though it's not amazing, has gone up. And we've seen volunteer teams rebuild and we've seen momentum at every one of our sites. Like there's all this good going on. But this is just the beginning of the rebuilding to momentum. It's sort of like we're back at Ezra 3. But we need to make sure that suddenly we don't end up 18 years later going, what were we supposed to do? One, how do we respond? We need to, you need to personally, we need to corporately ask the Holy Spirit to keep stirring up people and leaders. We all get distracted. We all get tired. We all go through life stuff. We're still not fully recovered from the last three years. We need an energy source, a gasoline, that's not naturally in our tank. And so, first thing, how do we keep rebuilding? What is the living... We need to ask the Holy Spirit to enliven, to speak to, to give desires to us that are not natural. You need to pray for the elders of this church. You need to pray for the staff of this church. You need to pray for future staff of this church. We need to pray for the people that make up this church and say, Holy Spirit, would you give us the want, desire, and ability to keep moving forward and rebuilding? It takes the Spirit of God. Number two, this is so important. If we're going to keep moving and rebuilding, but actually moving from rebuilding to momentum, we need to keep building the altar in this church. Do you notice that the renewal really took place when worship was reestablished? Worship of God brings clarity. Worship of God brings thanksgiving. Worship puts problems and stuff. It doesn't ignore them. It puts it in proper perspective. In other words, here's the command of God. If you belong to Sanctus Church... Keep making God and His worship and His house a priority. His literal worship, when we sing together as an example, as worship, that actually matters. We, Where two or three gather my name, I am present. It says in the Psalms, God inhabits His presence, inhabits the praise of His people. We have to continually make regular presence among God's people a priority So we move from rebuilding to thanksgiving. Because when we host His presence, everything changes. And by the way, your literal presence matters because other generations are watching to see if you'll make God's house in His presence a priority. And so number one, we need to pray for the Spirit of God to continue to empower leaders and the people to rebuild. Number two, we need to keep making worship. Remember, when we gather On a Sunday, when we gather in a connect group, actually it's not really about us. We are there to encounter the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are to sing to Him, give to Him, worship Him, hear from Him, and then we are changed. Remember, one of the great confessions that has been written in church history, what is the chief end of humanity, of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But it's in that order, to glorify God and then you enjoy Him. Number one, ask the Spirit of God to show up. And I'm literally this week, I'm asking you, would you pray for the elders specifically? Enliven them, Holy Spirit. Ask for the staff and pastors, enliven them. Ask for the Spirit of God to give our church an unnatural desire. And number two, keep making this a priority, his worship. Together, not just by yourself. Three, it's still okay to admit that sometimes we can't tell the difference between joy and, cry, joy and crying. It's Okay. I said this at the beginning, and I just want to say this as we end this ministry year together. There's a lot of people with a lot of history in our church. Some of us are still struggling with actually what the church used to be or maybe the church you came from used to be. So some of you are still mourning over what was, and lots of new people are like, this is incredible, I I can't believe what God is doing here. And it's okay that there's actually weeping and joy in the same house. But here's the difference, the weeping and the joy cannot be the end point. Actually, the rebuilding together is the decision. So let me ask you, are you bitter? Are you unforgiving? Are you letting pain and loss of the old temple hold you back? It's okay to admit it's real, but it should not hold you back. This is a new day, a new season, with new manna, and a new house to do a new thing. The old chapter is done, and it's interesting, right? I've been here for a very long time on staff, and I think I've had to say that three or four distinct times. That old chapter is amazing, but it's done. This is now a new chapter, and we move forward. So let's acknowledge whether we're joyful or we're weeping, but let us continue to rebuild. God always says in every season, give careful thought to your ways. And I just want to say, listen, as we continue to rebuild, to accomplish the God-given promises, our task that we're responsible for as a church in this region, in our city, I just want to say again, presence matters, that's connected to worship. Serving with your gifts, volunteering matters, and money matters. You know, when we came out of the pandemic, our volunteer teams were just decimated decimated. And um, it's been amazing from September to now to see how much, how many of the teams have started to rebuild. And yet still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds are still not serving among us yet. And we need you to. We need you to. But also giving. It's amazing how uh, the God is, God through his people, through you, through us, has really helped us during these three years. It's been amazing to see God's hand. But I just want to say um, that though giving has been good, it's not been generously great. Uh, For some of you, it has been. But as a church-wide thing, um, we're still held back. Uh, We are still held back for what we need to do and want to do and what God's asked us to do because of finances. We still are. And I just want to say, here's three questions I'd ask you. Are you giving at all to this church if you belong to this church? Like I said in September, hundreds of families weren't giving anything. Like, Remember, we give financially here because it's an act of worship. We give out of gratitude. So are you even giving here? If you're not, and this is your home church, today is the day. Literally sign up and say, I'm going to start giving. Number two, what would it even look like if everyone increased their giving by even 1%? It would radically change our ability to rebuild walls and altars and the temple and all of that stuff. Remember, we say this all the time. It's never about equal amounts but it is about equal sacrifice. So are you giving and are you serving? And some of you are like, well, John, you know, it's summertime and I'm getting ready to go to the cottage. Fine. But I just want to say to you, when we return on Mass in September, are we all giving? Are we all in? Are we all serving? Because the tide will turn when we decide to do that. Give careful thought to your ways, your time ways, your financial ways, your volunteer ways. But I end with this. God said, I am with you. And some of you say, yeah, yeah, you pastors always say God is with us because that's what you're supposed to do. Yes, and it's true. God is with all of us. But remember in the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, God uniquely was with them to actually do that task. And as we've said, God is uniquely with this church, not because we're more special. God is with all churches, but He's uniquely with us to actually continue to do the task we've been called to do. I remind you, Uh, with these old words, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So uh, would you stand wherever you might be, even if you are alone uh, at your house, and could you just pray this prayer uh, with me as we sort of do this next leg of dedication? Lord, come and give us your Spirit so we can be encouraged to do your work. Why do we want the power of God? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because we want to glorify God with our lives. Why do we want to glorify God? Because when He comes, drought ends. God be with us. God guard Sanctus Church. God guard and guide Sanctus Church. Accompany Sanctus Church. Fight for Sanctus Church. Lead Sanctus Church. God make Sanctus Church unwavering. God make us personally know your presence. God send your Spirit to help us do this work. Guard what's been rebuilt and actually help us not to get traffic jammed or wait 18 years. But as we end or come near the end of this ministry year and get ready for the next, begin this great rebuilding thing and build it now into momentum, we pray. For your glory, for others to know Jesus, and and, and again, for your presence in this region. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all said, amen. Can't wait to see you next week as we talk through the reality of struggling through in the middle as we even face opposition, but also faith and joy. We'll see you then. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, Be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Take care and we'll talk soon.